and good morning and welcome to The Skinny for Friday, June 2nd. I'm Mitch Perry, reporter of the Florida Phoenix, along with Ben Montgomery and Creative Loafing Editor-in-Chief Ray Roa. Good morning, guys. Good morning. How hey, you doing? Good morning, Mitch. All right. Good to be back here after a week off last week for myself. Uh, and by the way, next week will be fundraising. I want to put that out there right now. But today marks four weeks since the Florida legislature ended its regular 2023 session. And for the first time in a dozen years, Jeff Brandes was not part of that, but he is with us here this morning. Uh, Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? All right. Good. Let me make sure you get that mic going there. Uh, so to remind our listeners, Jeff Brand has served in the Florida legislature for a dozen years from 2010 to 2022, representing parts of Pinellas County. And now he's the president of the Florida Policy Project, a nonprofit think tank and policy uh, think tank. Um, Jeff, so before we get into some of the issues, uh, actually, yeah, let's, let's begin here. For one thing, you know, good to see you. And um did you miss being up in Tallahassee? Uh, not this year. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it would have been a difficult year for me up there. You know, last year I had kind of taken a position uh, very different from many of my colleagues on some of these issues, especially Disney and some of the other issues that came up. Uh, and so, you know, while I think that they did some, some great work this year, um, you know, I, I probably would have been Dr. No on a lot of the issues. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, just just the changing nature of the legislature. Yeah, and, and we'll get into that a little later, but what, what did you like that came out, if I could? Well, look, I mean, I think the, the journey that we started 20 years ago with, with Jeb Bush and education choice is a major issue and a major win for, for Florida and for Florida students. So to me, that's one of the biggest issues that kind of got through this year. That was really a culmination of 20 years of work to get to really universal vouchers uh, and allowing students to, to choose where they go and parents to choose where they go to school. Do you think that there should be limitations on, like, some folks who are who are a means that that they could have access to these as well or these vouchers. Look, I mean, I think ultimately um, the the legislature made the right decision of allowing basically everybody. They they, they kind of equalized uh, how how everybody can access. Uh, private schools and charter schools and public schools and I think that's the right way to do it. Today, look, wealthy people have always had school choice. This is not a new thing for them. Uh, it's really a new thing for everybody else uh, and, and allowing everybody else the same access that you know people with the, that are high net worth have the opportunity to do. And I think that equalization is going to be a great um, opportunity for Florida going forward. Alright, so let's talk about the Florida Policy Project, which I knew you began a couple months ago. Uh, it is, well, you tell us, what is it? Sure, right. So think of it, this is our tag where best practices uh, could produce better outcomes. And so one of the things that I recognized after being in Tallahassee for 12 years was, you know, on affordable housing, I didn't know who to go to. I didn't know what the best practices were. I didn't know who to go to in, in the state government that was an expert at affordable housing at scale and solving these problems. Criminal justice, prison reform, same thing. Um, transportation, you know, that was me. I was the considered the kind of yeah. the expert in transportation in a lot of those issues. Um, and, and so, and property insurance, again, there's just a very few people that were really considered experts. And so I recognized that there was this need for a group that, that really focused on identifying nationwide best practices uh, and bringing those to the legislature and informing legislators of these best practices that are, that are you know, kind of we've discovered from around the country. And so that's what the Florida Policy Project does. We're researching best practices and hoping to get Florida to the best practice. So our goal is identify the best practice, tell Florida where it stands against the best practice, and figure out how to get there. I don't think we need to really move beyond the best practice yet. We, we just need to figure out how do we get Florida to the best practice. And that's all, all over the place. Things from like criminal justice and prison reform, where Florida's current practice of releasing inmates is $50 in a bus pass. Right. Well, nobody will tell 
tell you in the country that that's a best practice. Um, really, you know, it's establishing making sure they have a job and making sure they have stable housing. If you can do those two things, if somebody can get out of prison with a job and stable housing, much less likely to be back involved in the criminal justice system. So that's just one example. Floridians are paying four times the national average in uh, property insurance than the rest of the country. Well, what's leading to that? Um, most legislators couldn't tell you. They couldn't have a real discussion about property insurance. And so we, we need to identify the best practices of, of the other states as it relates to the policies that the state has implemented to reduce property insurance rates. It's another key one. Affordable housing. Look, Florida has 23 million people today. It will have 28 million people by 2030, 2035. We're going to grow by 20% as a state in just under a decade, almost unimaginable to think about that level of growth. And look, you can see it every day you drive on the roads of Florida today. But where are these people going to live? They're already being priced out of major metropolitan areas. Most people that are the $15, $20 an hour employees are having to live 30, 45 minutes from where their job is. Um, and, and frankly, that creates more traffic on the roads. So, so um, what are the best practices we can implement that other cities and counties around the state, around the country have implemented that we can begin to, to implement here? And that's really the genesis of it. Sure thing. So again, if you're just tuning in right now, you're listening to the voice of uh, State Senator Jeff Brandis, former State Senator Jeff Brandis, who now is with the Florida Policy uh, Project here. He's just talking about the major things that the, project, that the think tank is talking about, which is property insurance, transportation, housing, criminal justice reform. Let's talk, let's begin with uh, property insurance, because sure. that has... That is, I mean, I think overall, it's, to me, Florida, we have an affordability crisis here. Uh, it was kind of rarely talked about during the campaign last year. Um, but with you, you mentioned housing. I think all of us in, the, in certainly the Tampa Bay area know about that. But also uh, in property insurance, you mentioned how much higher we pay than everybody else in the country. And then, Jeff, we've got, you know, we've got the situation. We had Hurricane Ian last September, uh, another horrible uh, storm. And yet, you know, and, and now we have people like taking advantage of the situation. There was a big report in the Washington Post in March that reported about uh, adjusters being contracted by regional insurance carriers that told the Post that managers have been changing their work by lowering totals, rewriting descriptions of damage, and deleting accompanying photos without their approval. Uh, uh, the Post writes that national carriers are pulled back from the market and smaller regional carriers with smaller financial reserves jumped in. In the wake of Hurricane Ian, these companies have been aggressively seeking to limit payouts to policyholders by altering the work of licensed adjusters. As a result, homeowners are left footing much of the bill for repairs, exposing an untenable gap between the cost of storm damage and what insurers are willing to pay for it. Now, we've already people are already paying more than anywhere else in the country, and then you, you actually get hit by something horrible like Ian, and they're not even getting what they do. Uh, Talk to us about that. Yeah, look, so the overall market is really uh, struggling right now. We just lost another insurance carrier in the state of Florida uh, yesterday. The, the Velocity decided they were going to pull out of the state of Florida. They're going to continue to operate in other states, but they've said no more to Florida. Uh, and that makes about the 10th or 11th or maybe 12th insurer that has left the state in the last two years. Um, and I think that's the overall challenge Florida's facing. Citizens has, has about... Uh, 1.3 million policies in citizens' property insurance. We fully expect that to grow to closer to, th to 2 million policies. Um, and and basically, the, the big barometer of the state of Florida's health of the property insurance market is what is the size of citizens? Because citizens basically takes all comers. And th that creates a major challenge because you and I ultimately backstop citizens. So citizens today has 8 or $9 billion of cash on, on, its, on hand. 
but it has today about 500 to 600 billion dollars of potential liabilities out there if a storm hits and if they don't have the cash on hand who gets to pay that bill every taxpayer in the state of florida who owns a property or anybody who drives a car and has car insurance in the state of florida we will face an assessment and that's right now one of the biggest risks facing the state it's one of the things that you know everybody talks about oh the state has a 25 billion dollar reserves well that could be wiped out with one storm in florida having to you know florida having to backstop its own property insurance industry i think it speaks to the larger challenges of the state but it's one of the things the florida policy project is going to take on is to look at some of these things now the state made major reforms last year i mean things that were almost unfathomable that the state would do uh four or five years ago and it it did so because basically the, the the whole industry was teetering on a cliff Right when you lose twelve insurers and you have zero new startups coming in, that creates a major challenge for the state. Look, most people think, "Oh, well, I have State Farm, I have Allstate, whatever." Uh, most of you don't have that. You, you're not part of State Farm of America. You're part of State Farm of Florida. Uh, state Farm and some of these other major companies firewalled off the state, and then you have a you know forty or fifty very small companies. Uh, that have nowhere near the financial right. strength of a state farm or all state that are providing the the rest of the insurance for the state, and so and even those companies like you saw Universal Property and Casualty uh, go under and be put into receivership. Well, that was a publicly traded, very large company, but we what we found was the litigation was crushing us in the state. Yeah. I mean, we were eight percent of total U.S. property claims, so eight percent of all of the property claims happening in the country were happening in Florida, but we were eighty percent of the national litigation. I mean, you can't be the most hurricane-prone state <laughs> and the most litigious state in the country by an order of magnitude and expect rates. And the legislature down. did address that, right, they in the did. special session they earlier did. this year? In yeah. December. And that's the challenge is we've always told people it's going to take 18 to 24 months right. for us to see real changes um, in property insurance rates. Well, if you start the time clock on December when that law kind of goes past and now go, well, when, when, when are rates going to come down? Well, it's probably going to be January of 25. And, is, and that, we saw, is that for the litigation to clear the pipeline? That's for the litigation to clear the pipeline. Well, it's for the courts to begin to make their adjustments. Um, and, and for, for you know, a lot of, if you look back at March, which is right the month before this litigation went into effect, literally hundreds of thousands of lawsuits were filed in March to try to beat the deadline of when that law went into effect. Hmm. Um, and so you have all of these claims, I mean, from Irma, I mean, Irma was years ago. Ian, right. You know, Hurricane Ian, all of this litigation still now has to make its way through the courts under the old law. Um, and, you know, basically as the, you know, June, July or June um, was, is sorry, May was when this, the new law kind of kicked in. And that's when you're going to see a major change begin to change. And we're already starting to see the benefits of this policy. Many of the insurers are saying, look, rates, uh, litigation is now coming down um, across the board, which is exciting. It's what we want to see and what we need to see for low rates to get lower in Florida. The I mean, litigation was amazing, right? Because we went through really the the rates escalated within after Irma up until last, you know, last year when we only had like Michael in 18. Yeah. We really didn't have any big storms for four years in the state. That's correct. And yet that's when we saw all these raids escalate. And it's like, oh my God, we, we, we're going to have a storm, which of course we did that last year with Ian. Uh, so that is so alarming. It was, I think the average rate was over 4,000. I think it's even higher now. Um, yeah, it's, listen, we had, this is crazy, but we had companies that were getting sued more than the entire industry in the state of California were getting sued. One company, 
was getting sued more than the entire industry in the entire state of California. A lot of it was these, these, these uh, roofs, right? It was largely assignment of benefits. It yeah. was roofs. You know, uh, water claims in South Florida became the major problem. Uh, water was kind of the new fire down there um, and, and became the major problem. Um, and, you know, and we still have this challenge of what is flood versus what is property. So that, that, that's one of the big challenges in Fort Myers right now is, you know, people are filing claims, but they didn't have enough flood insurance or they didn't have flood insurance at all. Right. Um, and they're saying, well, now I don't have enough coverage. And so that's where some of the big challenges have come in. Um, and why the state came to this policy of everybody who has citizens has to have flood insurance uh, because they don't want, they just don't want to get involved in that argument anymore. Right. But, it, right. but I think it speaks to the larger challenges the state faces when it comes to property insurance. Again, uh, you're listening to Skinny here on WMNF 88.5 FM. If you want to talk to Senate, former Senator Jeff Brandis, he's here to the, in the program right now. 813-239-9663. You can also write us at D, uh, WMNF, or excuse me, at DJ at WMNF.org. Uh, want to move on to criminal justice reform. Uh, I know a passion of yours and something that, and I certainly written a lot about this over the years, uh, Senator Brandis, and it's so frustrating because... When the mood has been there in this country, and we've seen in other southern states, and you know this so well, we've talked about before, uh, a lot of states passing reforms. The, the legislature didn't really go along with a lot of what you were trying to push uh, over the last few years. And then we've had, since 2020 and the, the, the George Floyd uh, you know, protests, uh, a lot of pushback on that. Crime is up now. Um, I want to ask you, jump from that to a federal issue, the first step back, which is um, President Trump signed. And this has become one of the issues that um, Ron DeSantis, uh, DeSantis, DeSantis, is now going after uh, Donald Trump on, because going from his right, and he's saying that this, you know, you're loose on criminals, uh, former President Trump. do you what first step back did you do you support that absolutely supported yeah. it wanted to bring in what we were doing in the first step back federally to Florida listen the first step act was a was a, a meaningful piece of legislation um, but it was you know again it was considered the first step right. of a larger discussion about reform um, and if Florida had done what the first step act did we would we would have seen real benefits the simple truth is the reports and studies have come out on the first step Act now and it's been a raving success I mean it's been uh, it's it's you're seeing recidivism dropping we're seeing um, we're seeing people get on with their lives. Um, and pe- these are people who have served significant amounts of time. The big challenge in Florida prison system is it's, uh, you know, uh, Florida has almost 82,000 inmates. We have a huge challenge of attracting corrections officers. 85% of our prisons are not air conditioned. Um, so corrections officers don't want to work all day long, 8, 12, you know, 16 hours in a facility like that. Um, most of our prisons have very little education opportunities inside the prison system. It's not uncommon for me when I was touring prisons to go to a prison with 1,500 inmates and find zero educators. And so people are just sitting around all day, every day. Most of the inmates in Florida Florida prisons cannot read at the sixth grade level. And so when they get out and they have had no, you know, they've been in prison for five or six years. They've had zero education opportunities while they were in prison. They can't read. And now all of a sudden they're getting out and and we expect them to be reformed. Well, a lot of them are deeply traumatized by the, the violence that occurs in the prisons because there isn't enough corrections officers. It's one of the major problems the state has. In fact, that's why we brought in 300 members of the National Guard yeah. to kind of backfill. Um, but I think it speaks to the overall challenges the floor prison system is facing. Most of the facilities are older. They're falling apart. Uh, they can't get replacement uh, facility replacement parts for the, the key things that are breaking down in the prison facilities. And, uh, you know, I always to describe people, it's like, you know, when I was working on criminal justice reform in the legislature, it was like being a firefighter showing up at a, at a house, you know, like a volunteer firefighter showing up at a house and every room is on fire and you've got to figure out where to start. And the simple truth is you don't start with a hose, you start with a radio. 
because you can't do it all yourself. And so I think what you're seeing in Florida is a variety of different groups, some that are that are family members groups, mm-hmm. others that are faith-based groups that all recognize the enormity of the problem in Florida and all are trying to move forward and, and provide pathways to help. And Why is this an issue for you, Jeff? Um, it's an issue for me because when I was, um, when I was first elected uh, to the Senate, I was placed on a criminal justice committee. And I remember sitting um, and, and hearing a story of a man down in South Florida who was play, taken out of his cell, thrown into his, the, the showers, and the corrections officers turned the shower all the way up and left him in there. They came back hours Miami later. Wrote about correct. This, yeah. Came back hours later, and he was found dead. And nobody was ever prosecuted. And I remember sitting in the room, and I remember seeing one legislator on his laptop, the other one on cell phone, and kind of feeling like, oh my gosh, there's nobody looking at this thing. There's nobody kind of, you know, trying to figure out how to solve some of these problems in the prison system. And the deeper I looked the more challenging I, I, I saw this, the, the criminal justice system being. You know, I would tour facilities and I would see cockroaches crawling all over the kitchens. Um, and I would you know, say, well, where, where, you know, when does the health department come in here? And they were like, well, you know, we haven't had it fumigated in a, in a few months or somebody missed their time. And I was like, you, you, nobody expects, even you, know, even you and I, who expect inmates to be punished while they're in, or, you know, to go to printers and ask punishment, don't expect there to be roaches in their food. Like we as a state should have a standard that doesn't involve that. But those are the types of things I saw. And, and you know, and the amount of inmate idleness, the amount of challenges that we were having with both in, inmate on inmate violence, inmate offer violence, officer on inmate violence. Um, it spoke to the fact that we couldn't retain uh, corrections officers. And we, we were hiring younger and younger corrections officers. The, you know, it was not uncommon for a correction. I mean, I think it was like 60% of the corrections officers would quit within their first year. Now, they have raised the pay a lot in the last couple of years. They've had to, right? Yeah. They've but, had but, to because they had this catastrophic right. situation where they couldn't retain people. And you were get people getting hired by the counties and to be a sheriff's right, department right. or other places because it was just a much better job at a much higher pay and without the threat of violence. Yeah, Jeff, you're talking about the humanity and sometimes inhumanity of the criminal justice system. You're talking about people and things like that. We're like a year and a half removed from it, and I'm curious. Um, SJR 382, uh, where uh, convicted felons might have been exempt from the minimum wage increase, being removed from that now and all the everything around that. How, how do you feel about that legislation that was proposed? And well, I and, proposed it, so right. Explain to people though. You yeah. just threw that out there, uh, Ray. What that what that sure, was? Talk sure. About that, so Jeff, that was considered a temporary training wage. It was allowing people to re-enter the workforce for temporary basis and and provided incentives for employers to hire people who were who were just getting out of prison right so today they what they do is they take your application they go all right we 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 see you just got out of prison we're going to put it at the bottom of the stack and if we don't if we go through the entire stack we don't find anybody for that job but it was giving them an incentive to look at somebody that otherwise they would not have even considered so you look the ultimately the minimum wage in the state of Florida is zero. If you can't get a job, you're not going to get paid anything. So my goal was to get them paid something, get them started, and for a temporary allow- period of time, allow them to work in that job to get training, especially out of prison, um, because I think that's what you know. Again, job and housing are the two most important things to get when once somebody gets out of prison. We've got. How do we incentivize I'm sorry, people to get a job? Yeah, and you definitely got a lot of pushback on that when you propose that. Um, we've got some people who are want to talk to you. So let's go to the, the phones right now. We've got uh, Layla. I think it is uh, from Brandon. Hi there, Ayla. Yes, I'm here. Yeah, um, you're on the air with uh, yes. former Senator Jeff Brandis. Yes, this is um, uh, uh, Senator Brandis. I am so proud of you. I, I, it's so refreshing to hear a senator talk about prison reform. I've been helping with prison reform in Hillsborough County for the last 
I think since 2012, we've tried to do a back-to-work initiative for the felons coming out of prison so they could work at Sammy's Bakery, his new bakery, and make um, work 20 hours a week, go back to school 10 hours a week, and get their GED and refresher courses, and then also do 10 hours in electrical plumbing and carpentry so they have certification in three areas. I applaud you. We're number one in recidivism. We're number four in population. Hillsborough County is um, really needing reform. And so I just want to thank you for that. And second, we just got a bailout on citizens insurance for I think 1.25 million for cash available from Bank of America and um, Wells Fargo. What is going on with citizens that they can't uh, seem to get a hang of the business? Well, citizens' rates are capped by the legislature. The legislature doesn't allow them to charge actually sound rates. They, they, you know, have the rates are politically set, and the legislature has now come back and said, "All right, we need to raise rates." And so, we, you know, they can raise rates, uh, getting more closer to an actually sound rates. But around the state of Florida, citizens' rates last year were about thirty percent less than what another company was charging, a private market company was charging. In this, in Tampa Bay and in Miami Dade, they were fifty percent less than what the the other companies were charging and that was the, that created this huge delta and one of the reasons why citizens uh, population has ballooned is because they were just 50% cheaper in major markets than their competition and so you know it, it helped uh, people kind of be able to stay in their homes, be able to get into citizens. And it's hard to blame them for, for, for going into citizens, but it created a situation where citizens just wasn't bringing enough premium to deal with the risks that they were facing. And now they've had to take out these lines of credit to kind of backstop them um, in case there is a major storm because they don't have enough cash on hand because they've charged below market premiums for years now. And that's created this situation. But I really want to thank you for your advocacy on criminal justice and prison reform, because to me, that's it's, it's going to take citizens standing up and meeting with legislators to get them to to encourage them to to have a different perspective on the prison system. Listen, we send the people to prison for punish like for as punishment. Like the prison is the punishment. We don't expect them to be punished inside the prison right. in addition to being in prison. The prison the prison going to prison is the punishment. Uh, unfortunately, all too often the, the the there's additional punishment happening inside the prison uh, and that's something that's unacceptable. All right. Thank you, Wayla. Let's go to uh, Deandra, I believe it is, uh, from Brandon. Hi. Yeah, I'm actually from Tampa, and I want to thank everyone there, gentlemen and folks there, to uh, for holding uh, this conversation. I could talk about a lot of stuff. I want to get on just one thing. It's about where corporations have gone as far as for work days. Productivity is problematic um, where parents can't be available for their children, and that's including... Uh, municipal, uh, state, and federal employees. The work is tremendous for uh, in all these different in, uh, institutions and their you know departments. Corporations have gone and done four day work weeks, uh, so to to help people you know uh, after you know COVID of course, but to you know help people um, you know adjust to that, and they found a lot of benefits of that. Uh, some anyway, um, particularly for teachers. What's the chance of going in that direction i've heard other things going on when it comes to teachers but uh what's the chance of something like that going on when it comes to uh uh, parents and uh you know maybe students going somewhere else on friday as opposed to the uh to the uh, the school grounds uh something third party and, and you know finally get a third party involved in the education process with uh gymnastics uh 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 agriculture something music, whatever, 
doing it that way as opposed to the direction we're looking at and that we've been set in so far and for so long. Thank you. I'll, I'll, I'll take my answer off there. I don't think anybody's talking about moving to a four-day school school week. Uh, I think that would hurt the, the, the people working more than it would help right. individuals yeah. working. Um, I do think you're going to see some more conversations around year-round school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think especially for low-performing schools, there's some more discussion. There's a huge drop. There's a huge kind of summer learning gap where students, you know, end school, you know, uh, in, in June and they start back up in you know, August or September and they, you know, they haven't learned anything during the summer and they, right. what they're learning really falls off. So I think there's going to be some more discussions about year-round school and and especially in Florida. I want to ask you about the elections bill that was passed this year, Uh, our third big major reform election bill in the last three years, even though we've had, you know, uh, theoretically, and I think truly smooth elections in Tallahassee and throughout the state. I specifically want to talk about uh, something I know that you've been concerned about, and that, of course, is related to uh, felons getting their rights restored. So part of the bill this year was uh, they're going to put a statement on the voter information cards, which tell people that this card does not mean they're eligible to vote, that they still should check with their supervisor elections if they have any questions. Basically, this means that um, that if they are unsure about their eligibility, that it's on them and not on the state uh, to do that. This comes after what happened last fall, last summer, of course, the arrests of people for uh, felons who were voting uh, illegally. Uh, what's your thought about that? Well, look, as soon as they put a statement on a driver's license that says, we're giving you a driver's license, but this doesn't mean the state believes you can drive. Right. It's the same thing. Listen, you can put whatever statement you want on the back of it, but ultimately it's the state's responsibility. It's the state's job to ensure the voter rolls are, are appropriate and, and correct. And the state didn't do its job. I mean, here, here the state, you know, to these individuals, they go out and register to vote. Many of them are, you know, doing it in the Walmart parking lot where somebody has a registration sign. You know, they're not state employees. They're just out there trying to volunteer, get people to register to vote. Somebody comes up to says, hey, listen, I, you know, I'm a felon. Somebody, you know, they're, they're not educated on the right. law. And they just say, hey, listen, felons got their rights restored. They say, oh, okay, good. I'll fill out the paperwork, send it off. And nobody checked. Listen, it, the, the defined list of population right now, especially the ones that got arrested, these 20 individuals, they either committed murder right. they had a, or, 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 or some type of sexual offense. Like these aren't big, hard lists to check. The state knows who the people who've committed yeah. murder are. It's not a big list. And they know that the people who are considered sex offenders uh, under the either sex offenders or have considered a sexual felony. Oh, those are two different lists um, that, that don't qualify. But the state didn't check that list. And that was that was just a failure of the Secretary of State's office. Now they everybody tried to point blame, right? And the Secretary of State said, "Oh, it's the local supervisors." Right. The local supervisor says, "We don't even have access to the database that provide it." Ultimately, the state stepped up and said, "You know, look, the, the, it wasn't the supervisor's elections fault. At least that's the letter that they sent to the to the secretary to the to the supervisors." Um, but, you know, what I want to see is the legislature take responsibility and the state take responsibility and say, it's our job to get this done. And we need to put the resources to get it done. We can create a database that, that right. reviews these individuals. We can do that. But it's not, listen, putting that on the individual. A lot of these, you know, many people can't read and don't understand the law. They're not attorneys. We can't put it on them. And, you know, I wrote several articles about that during the session because we were been focusing a lot on this issue. Cord Bird actually did say at one point, Speaking uh, when he was getting confirmed that yeah we should we should do something like that, dude. That is you 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 could do it tomorrow, right? If you if you really believed in that, but as you, and I talked to you about that, Senator, when we had the uh, the. the 
criminal justice reform uh, meeting in September in Tampa, and you just don't think the state cares about that. They, 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 they want to do this. They want to have a repository, a statewide database system where anybody could check right now if they're eligible in terms of if they had a for previous felony, so they could not be what happened to them, what happened to folks in August last, you know, last August when they were arrested for uh, voting uh, uh, illegally, that the state could do it. They just well, don't have the interest to, to listen, do it. We know they made a mistake last year because the, there, a number of court cases got thrown out. First of all, the statewide prosecutor last year did not have the authority to arrest people for election fraud. Uh, you know, they tried to say, oh, it was some, you know, that this was uh, a multi-jurisdictional fraud because they somehow mailed the ballots to Tallahassee. The judges totally didn't buy that argument from the state and throughout a lot of the cases because they, 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 they said the statewide prosecutor just didn't have the authority to do it. Um, but I think, you know, the state now has come back and changed the law to allow the statewide prosecutors to have that authority. Yeah. But look, ultimately, when I wrote the law, because I wrote the Amendment 4 law, we, we put in there the world that it had to be willful, right? It had to be willful contact, right? And willful mm. contact is a standard. It doesn't require evil intent, but it does require some intent, some knowledge of that what you're doing potentially is against the law. And most of these people have no knowledge of that, right? They, they didn't think about that. Um, and, and so it, that's why most of these cases, in fact, I don't know of any cases, some of them have settled, right? They have, But none of them have resulted in prison time or anything like that. And many of them have been thrown out. Most of them have settled just because people just wanted to get on and move on with their lives right. and because the state offered them basically a deal of like, you will know, we'll just put you on probation for another year. Um, but for the most part, um, the state has, ne has not met that standard the only places where they've met the standard is like up in the villages where it was clear that people voted twice on purpose. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let me ask you something real quick while we have here since we are talking about Florida Policy Project. Um, no government money will fund the, the project. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit more and talk more specifically about the individuals, foundations, and corporations who fund the FPP? Yeah, look, I mean, we, we're one, we're a 501c3, or we're, we're working to get our 501c3 status right now. It takes about six months to get that, so we just started. Um, but our goal is not to take, you know, we're, we're not going to take any government money. Our goal is to provide that independent voice about what is the best practices in the country. And I think, you know, given my stance, yes, I'm a Republican, but really I'm a libertarian, right? I would consider myself a capital L libertarian, little r Republican. And so I think, you know, given my, my experience of 12 years in the legislature, my deep understanding of a lot of these issues, um, and, and my relationships that I've built over the last decade, working with, you know, the industries uh, from around, around the state and frankly around the country, um, our goal is to work with our public universities to allow them to put forth policies that they believe are the best practices, to, to vet those with other experts in the country, and then to provide the legislature a list of best practices, and, and not just the list, but the expert network that will help support them when they begin to write policy on this. So, you know, we're, we're, we're just in our first year. We're just working on, on, on getting our feet off the ground. Um, we're going to do some really interesting things. So I've already run, I already run a transportation conference. We really want to do a housing conference because there isn't really one a statewide housing conference that, that talks about affordability. And we really want to do a criminal justice conference because we don't see one at the statewide level either. Um, we're probably not going to do an insurance conference. There's a bunch of insurance conferences that happen in the state of Florida and it's really boring and, you know, but we are going to provide some expertise to, to help address some of these issues on the expert. In, in the, but one of the things we're doing this summer is uh, we're planning to do uh, prison tours with legislators. So we're going to get a we're going to get a, a vehicle and drive around the state, you know, work and schedule with legislators, um, and then tour them around prisons. Wow! 
one of the things that you know a legislator right has a right to do is show up at a prison any time, day or night, and walk that prison uh, with the senior official that's there, and and to see what's going on right right then. Um, and so we're planning to do unannounced prison tours with probably four to five legislators, uh, and and do that throughout the month of July. And why July? Because again, I said eighty five percent of prisons are not air conditioned, and I want people to experience what that's like, what it's like to be in a room with a hundred and forty people on a dry, hot day in the middle of the state where there's no air and there's no circulation and see how people live and realize that most of these inmates um, are not, ex- you know, they've got nothing to do and they're just sitting on their cots all day long. And the amount of humanity that is just wasting itself in the prison system, especially when you have 82,000 inmates, um, is, is immense and, and we've got to do better. And if you're just tuning in right now, you're listening to The Skinny here on WMNF 88.5 FM. I'm Mitch Perry along with Ben Montgomery, Ray Rowe, and our guest, former State Senator Jeff Brandis. Uh, we've got a couple of notes in here, Jeff, I want to uh, read off to you. Uh, let's see, Dave has a couple questions. Let's go this one. What, what he's, he asked about is, and this did not, I don't think, this past this session, um, about raising the uh, number of uh, voters needed to uh, pass a constitutional amendment, which, of course, right now it's at 60 percent. I know there's been a proposal by uh, Rick Roth, actually, down South Florida. He's done, done it every year to get to 66 percent. I, I'm not 100 percent certain that got through. It would still be, have to be voted on by the public Correct. if it did get there. But w- the idea overall, um, it's pretty hard, as you know. Yeah, it, it takes is. millions Listen. of dollars. Uh, Truly, has raised $38 million to get recreational pot on the ballot for next year. Um, do you, what, what are your thoughts about raising the— uh, uh, I, Listen, I think constitutional amendments should be hard to get on the ballot, but they should not be impossible to get <laughs> okay. on the ballot. Yeah. And I think that's what, what raising the standard to 66% or a supermajority would do. And that's what I've told the members. You know, They, they pitched me on this idea last year. And, and, and I push back a lot. Um, ultimately, the state has made it very difficult to get things on the ballot, right? You can't have paid ballot harvesters that, you know, they, you, you have all of these different challenges that they, they, they've implemented over the last few years. Right. And, you know, it takes millions and millions of dollars to get something on the ballot. That's why the things that you're seeing on are like adult use marijuana uh, what is going to get on the ballot. Why? Because it's backed by the corporations that are putting it, this, you know, the true leaves and the cure leaves of the world that have the millions of dollars to spend on a ballot initiative. Like I know this. that you, you cannabis is another thing that you were, well, you, uh, you know, where it's one of your issues that you're working on. Um, did you follow the issue about the hemp uh, hemp legislation this year at all? Did you cover? No, I yeah. didn't follow that. Yeah, at all. well, uh, you know, I, we did, and we had we had somebody as a guest here. Uh, it, it never went, never happened, basically, at the end of the day. But it was interesting because there was some thought that the true leaves of the world were the ones pushing that because they feel competition from like these Delta Eight products. And, Look, yeah. I, the, the way that Florida regulates marijuana is probably the worst way in the country. Right. I mean, other than the fact that is that it, adult use, I'm sorry, that, that medical is allowed in Florida, having these vertically integrated systems, I told them from day one was going to be a disaster. And yeah. you know what? It's turned out to be a disaster. A cartel, you call it. Yeah, it's a cartel. It's a, a oligopoly, if you will. And and ultimately what's happening here is there's a handful of people that are going to make, make all the money, right? And and most people will never have access to the the entire industry. Um, and that's it's, it's been a disaster since day one. And think about this. We're about to have, to, what, 20, 30 life licenses become available. But in order to be vertically integrated, you need about $40 million of capital oh, wow. to be able to be in the business because you've got to grow. Are we the only state that does it? We're one it? of the few states yeah. that does it, right? With but you've got to grow, you've got to process, you've got to distribute, and then you've got to retail. And so you've got to have the cash in order to meet all the standards for all of those different things um, and have some working capital and you know pay people to, 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 to get all this stuff done. And so if you, you've got to start the business with $40 bucks. So we're about to be a state awash in licenses where nobody grows. 
Hmm. And so, and you know, two or three years ago, you could get a license, you didn't have to grow, and then you, you know, people were immediately trying to sell their license for ten or twenty million dollars. I, I think that's probably what's going to happen with the Black Farmers Rise license. Right, they're, they're just going to turn around and sell it. Hmm. Um, and and you know, this was pitched to the legislature when it was first started uh, by the House. Then they said, oh, it's going to be Florida-based businesses. These guys have been in business for forty years. And I quickly asked, well, you know, if I sell the shares of a business that to to a third-party group from California, um, technically the business is still been in place for 40 years. And that's exactly what happened. They, they, they just sold the underlying shares. They said, oh, the business has still been around for 40 years. Yeah, but it has totally different right. ownership. And that's what happened all over the state. Virtually, virtually none of these licenses are owned by the, right. the person that originally bought Absolutely. them. Uh, do you, right. We've, so we got 22 licenses, right? Originally, I mean, that or uh, yeah. although I think like 14 companies really have been doing anything. But Correct. Right. Yeah. I mean, a vast majority, and you're about to have 20 more come online. And again, nobody's going to grow because it's just too expensive. And a vertically integrated market, especially when you had your main competitors have had, you know, years of getting the, the best retail facilities or getting embedded in communities. But we still run out of product all the time. Uh, the quality is still a, a, a challenge and an issue. Um, and frankly, this is, I mean, imagine if McDonald's had to grow the cows, grow the, you know, grow the buns, you know, grow, grow the wheat. It's very anti-business. You know, it, it's just, it's like, I mean... In what world does a small government Republican legislature set up a system of oligopolies and cartels? Well, isn't it a problem, though, because a lot of your colleagues, that. especially in the House, I'm sorry, but it did, did, didn't really want this at all. And so seemingly made it as hard as possible to be Cor effective. Correct. Right. And, and what they've done is made it very a handful of people very rich and not allow anybody else to participate in the marketplace. And that's not free market capitalism as I understand it. Um, that is, you know, that is the exact opposite of free market capitalism. Listen, uh, you know, I think my, my colleagues in the legislature are very capitalist focused, except for when it comes to insurance, where they are perfectly fine having a socialist group like Citizens Property Insurance take over a vast majority of the insurance in the state of Florida, which is now the largest insurance provider, and marijuana, where, where they're perfectly fine having a cartel that runs the entire industry so they don't have to understand it. And frankly, probably gaming too, right? They try to give all of the sports betting in the entire state to the Seminole tribe, which I think was insane as well. So, I mean, these are the kind of areas where, you know, I've gotten very vocal and pushing back. And, and frankly, they don't have good arguments to show me why it's a good free market Republican policy that they, they think she should be done. It's very odd world when you're in Tallahassee and the Democrats are agreeing with you on more free market issues than your Republican colleagues are. Mm. That's kind of how you get roasted in these in these elections sometimes. We will, we will ask you this before we let you go. Though we have plenty of time. We've got 15 more minutes here. Um, Jeff, uh, so Ron DeSantis, I know you have, you know, you've said different things about him over the years. Um, he is now running for president, as we all know. And um, it's a very, it, the, the campaign really has just begun with him running the last week or so. We've got a long way to go. We've got many Republican candidates running. Are you looking at, um, do you have an open mind about who you might back for president next year? Well, look, I am. Um uh, I've always, I think Ron DeSantis would, would be a better president than Donald Trump. I think he is, um, I think he's very smart. I think he, um, and while I don't agree on, on, on many issues, I think ultimately, um, you know, I think he would have a better reception, uh, both in the state of Florida, around the country, and frankly, worldwide. Um, uh, and I think that's been my perspective for a while now. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, you know, if it's a if it's a conversation between two people, right? But um, it's not though. I'm actually, we have a, we have right. a lot of other people getting right. in. Well, and I think this is the challenge that, that Governor DeSantis faces, right? And frankly, is probably puts puts the camp more in the Trump space. Is every person that gets in, Trump is going to hold you know twenty five. Right. Let's let's say he gets thirty to thirty five percent of the vote. Every other person that gets in is going to take a piece. 
of whatever is left over. And Governor DeSantis, is, that's his big challenge, is he's going to take a piece of that as well. But so is Chris Christie, and so is Nikki Haley, and so is everybody else that gets into this race. Uh, and I think that's the challenge that the numbers that, that the DeSantis campaign has to kind of figure out, is how they're going to win when when 35% of the base would, would vote for Donald Trump, whether he's a Republican or running as an independent. Yeah. Very interesting. How much does, um, you know, you've talked about moving on from Disney and getting back to business and things like that, but at the heart of that are, are people, queer people specifically, who whose lives are being affected by legislation getting pushed through in this last session, which you weren't um, involved with. How much of, the you, are you concerned about that coming to the national conversation and DeSantis running on that at all? Well, look, I think one of the fundamental tenets of, an Amer- of, of American society um, is the the ability to... Um, you know, be able to exercise this right to 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 live freely and to you know pursue happiness, whatever that means, right? And I think we should recognize that pursuing happiness is different for different people, and we need to respect that, however it is. Florida has a very large LGBT community engaged in it, and they have a right to be part of that conversation. And I think anything that we do that continues to push down on that right is pushing back against their right to pursue happiness. Now, do I think the opportunity for, for legislators to step up and, and say, well, these, there are certain things that are inappropriate? Sure. I was somebody who stood up and said, listen, I don't want to have any conversations about sexual activity between kindergarten and third grade. That's perfectly fine. Uh, I, I think that we, should, we, should, we shouldn't have those conversations with your very young students. But um, the legislature had a very different tact and wanted to very focus that conversation. And I didn't think that was appropriate. Uh, and so I voted against the, the don't say gay bill. Um, and, and, and I think there's a lot of this discussion about Disney has been nothing but retribution, which again, I don't think is small government, which I don't think is, uh, I think it pushes the envelope, uh, and potentially, um, it puts us in a position of being up against Citizens United, which was a case that says corporations have the right to free speech. Mm-hmm. I think ultimately that the state's going to lose that case against Disney. The question I have is, well, what's the remedy? Because clearly the state has the opportunity and the right to adjust special districts. But um, can they do it just for the political purposes? I don't know. And I think ultimately Disney wins, but ultimately the special district changes stay in place because there's really no remedy. Uh, going back to the uh, cannabis issue, so truly yesterday got the sufficient amount of signatures, so they're going to go before the Supreme Court at some point. Um, Attorney General Ashley Moody is down on this. She's already <laughs> weighed in, although she's probably going to weigh in more on it. Um, do you have concerns about the Supreme Court finding some way to not get this on the well, ballot? Well, they did last time, right? Yeah. They, they did last time by kind of moving away from precedents and saying, well, because you didn't say the federal government, it's not illegal federally, then um, then uh, it's not going to be, you, you know, we're not going to pass the ballot initiative or let the ballot issue go forward. That that has been resolved with this current language. So it'll be interesting to see that the argument that they give this time to try to, to twist themselves into a pretzel to not allow this to happen. Listen, it's not a question of if Florida's going to have med- adult use cannabis someday. It's a question of when. And this, this it's not like this issue is going to go away. Uh, and, and so, you know, the, the, the sooner we face it, the sooner we deal with it, I think the better off we're going to be. Um, and frankly, you know, it's going it, to, if we look at the experience of other states, I think if it's done right and done well, it won't be the issue that people make it out to be. Again, if you're just tuning in right now, you're listening to The Skinny here. We're speaking with former State Senator Jeff Brandis. He's got his uh, policy uh, think tank now up and running, and he's got uh, new programs up there, new policy prescriptions for the Florida Policy Project. So, Jeff, we were hoping to see it before it came out today, but um, on housing, which, uh, you know, arguably is the number one issue for a lot of our listeners in Tampa Bay uh, in terms of the rents uh, and the housing costs. 
have gone up. Um, there was a bill passed this year, uh, uh, Kathleen Passidomo, that was her pet project. The uh, they call it the Live Local Act. Live Local Act. Live yeah. Local, yeah, Live Local. Live local. Um, and um, what do you think of that? $700 billion? So I think, I think it's really good for apartment developers. Um, and okay. I think that's, that's prob- predominantly where you're going to see it being used and not so much in the single family home world. And I think there's a lot more we can do. Again, I'm not somebody who believes that we're going to solve these problems with money from Tallahassee. They're just, I mean, again, you know, we talked about this before the show. Yeah, the state can put 200, 300 million dollars towards affordable housing. And that sounds like a ton of money, but divide it by every, every county, which is 67 counties in the state of Florida. And what you find is that, that there is, um, there's just not enough resources there. You're going to have to solve this with policy. And that's what the Florida Policy yeah. Project is going to push forward. Is that We're going to push forward the policy ideas that have worked in other states, that have worked in other counties, and how we're going to deal with the fact that Florida is growing by 20% over the next 15 years. And so what have you, what have you, you, you the, your new paper that came out on housing, what, what are you kind of talking sure, about? Sure. So we talk about zoning. We talk about upzoning. We talk about um, reducing lot sizes. Um, and we talk about uh, 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 accessory dwelling units, uh, mother-in-law suites, if you will, um, on housing and, and how the state can incentivize those at, at the state level to get people to do that and get counties and cities to, to think about that in a different way. So for us, ultimately, we come up with, f- uh, I think we have five recommendations the state can, can implement um, and counties and cities can implement in order to increase the amount of ho- housing uh, available in their communities. Listen, apartments are an incredible portion of it. You know, we have certain counties like Pasco County that has created a moratorium for for apartments on the southern portion of the county and yet that county is now screaming for affordable housing dollars well the problem is like you've you've already said like you we don't want more uh, apartments but now you're screaming for affordable housing dollars at the same time so we need we, we need a constant conversation and frankly Tallahassee has to tailor the incentives to get counties and cities to do the right thing how does the state incentivize uh, accessory dwelling units Oh, uh, today they don't. You, they don't include. They're not included in the overall ad valorem tax. So um, you can get uh, accessory. You can put an accessory dwelling unit on your property, and it won't be included as a part of an ad valorem tax. But there's more we could do. For example, we potentially could say, well, if you're building an accessory dwelling unit, we're not going to charge sales tax for it, which would be another you know five six thousand dollar benefit to putting an accessory dwelling unit. Listen, it's an all hands on deck situation. There is no panacea. There's no one thing that the Florida needs to do. There's a bunch of things that we've got to do in order to address this. Um, and I think that that um, the legislature is going to be hyper-focused on this for years to come because we're already seeing continue, rents continuing to rise um, across the state of Florida. Now they're starting to stabilize a little bit but uh, uh, in certain markets. But I think um, but I think ultimately there's just it's one of those situations where we need to get the experts in the room. We need to continually go through what Florida's doing, and we need to provide an incentive for cities and counties to do the right thing. We can't have counties putting moratoriums on apartment complexes um, because it just the demand isn't going away, and if you restrict supply, prices go up. I mean, it's kind of economics 101. We just need those county commissioners to understand how economics work and understand the challenges that they're going to face longer term when they put these types of things in place. No, oh, Jeff, I want to thank you, first off, for spending the whole hour with us. I know we, I know we planned for 30 minutes, but this conversation has been um, really great for you and getting the feedback. I'm sorry to go back to funding here, but, I mean, you had the 12-year run in Tallahassee. FPP is going to be a major player in this with, sure. all, with all your partners and, and the schools to, to direct policy. And I don't know if you can definitively answer this question today since FPP is still getting off the ground, but can you tell our listeners, specifically those um, concerned with prison reform, how much, like some companies, so let's say when you were um, up in Tallahassee, like Geo Group, one of the 
Congratulations, you know, largest private prison contractors donated to your campaign. How much will or won't like a group like Geo Group be involved with FPP? Oh, this is the beautiful thing. We're yeah. asking, we're, we're, we're basically brokering this information out, right? So we're asking the public universities to come up with the best practices. Hopefully they're untainted okay. <laughs> by any type of politics and, and the discussion, right? So we're, we're, we're asking the questions. And we're not letting the public universities come up with the answers. And so, and our very questions are very broad right now. For, for example, in criminal justice, we'll say, well, what's the best practice for reentry? Period. You know, question mark. What's the best practice for education in the prison system? What's the best practice for healthcare in the prison system? How do we focus on diversion better? Um, those types of questions are the ones we're asking, and we're letting the public universities coming up with the answers. Oh, it's not like the Florida Policy Project independently is coming up with its own answers. Our goal is to capture the data from around the country, and you know, sometimes you're going to find reports on our site that aren't Florida Policy Project reports. We, they're just they're reports maybe from the state of Tennessee who's done a criminal justice study, and we think that's really important information that we want to provide the legislators. We want to house that study on our site as well, because we think that that's valuable. So for, for us, you know, I see us as a curator of this information and the ability for us to curate the best product from around the country that really focuses on, on the outcomes that we want, because we think that the best practices are going to lead to better outcomes. Cool. We got a, a text message from somebody, I guess, going back to housing here, who writes, I want to make sure I get this right. Why not sell grow tax stamps and let the people grow their own? Uh, I think that's more on the medical marijuana side. Yeah, yeah, but, or adult use marijuana side. Okay, just I'm kind of confused there. Right. Um, yeah, homegrown was thrown out. The court would have Joe Redner's lawsuit. Uh, that wasn't happening. Uh, transportation, that yeah. is a thing that's under one of your passions. Um, um, now, Jeff, you are so big into the whole, like, you know, Uber, driving Uber and, yeah, you know, these cars, people drive on their own. Um, where is, is that, where's that at right now? So let me think, look, uh, this is how I kind of think about that world. I think 2010 to 2020 was the decade of the shared economy where you had Uber and Lyft and DoorDash and, you know, all the other apps yeah. coming online that people have heard of, um, that, that, that I think that was the decade of the shared economy. I think 2020 to 2030 is the decade of electrification. And you're starting to see this, obviously, Tesla and Ford, everybody is moving into the electrification space. In fact, I think by 2030, 35% of all available vehicles or all vehicles sold will be in that will be electric, which will radically transform how the world uh, utilizes the vehicles and, and, and frankly, how, you know, has massive implications, not only for, for, uh, for car owners, but for dealerships. Understand mm -hmm. dealerships make, you know, 60% 60, 60 of their money is service and 40%, only 40% sales. Well, electric vehicles need, what, one-fifth the amount of service? There's no belts. There's no alternators. There's no oil changes. So it's going to radically change that. Um, it's going to, but it's also, you know, when you have 35% less people buying gas, it's right. going to change a lot of the gas stations. So you're about to see a whole redevelopment of the world of transportation take place because of this shift. It's not just individuals going to electric vehicles. The entire state of Florida. Right, and, and the federal government, right? Shift. Joe Biden is really pushing correct, this. Yeah, correct, correct. Right. So, stations. So I think 2020 to 2030 will be the decade of electrification in 2030 and beyond will be the decade of automation. And you're going to see automation take place first in three different areas. You're going to see it in port operations. Most of the ports of, of America could be automated today. You're going to see it in long haul trucking and virtually all agriculture will be automated down the road. I mean, you know, whether from strawberry picking machines to, uh, to, to large hum combine harvesters, 
that world is going to be automated at such a huge level with self-driving vehicles that are operating on those farms. Um, it's going to radically change. And frankly, it's how we're going to provide the food necessary to to feed the world, which is what America does. And you're get, your policy group is going to have a, a forum on this later this year? So yeah, we're in September this year, we have, we have, we've held it now for 11 years, uh, yeah, the Florida right. Automated Vehicle Summit. We're in Tampa for the next two years. Uh, we're going to be talking about, we're focusing this year really on electric uh, vertical takeoff and landing, because that's something that's kind of around the corner. But Florida is going to be a lead state in the conversation about vertical takeoff and landing. What is that? What is that? Uh, think about electric vehicles that can take off from downtown cores and drive you to, you know, and fly you to uh, other downtown cores. So, you know, you want to take off in Naples and you want to be in, uh, and you want to be in Miami and you want that instead of being an hour and a half drive or an hour drive, you want to be there in 20 minutes. Well, how are you going to do that? Well, that's EV tall. And we think we can do that basically for the price of an Uber. Uh, and so it's going to radically transform how how society moves around, uh, and it's going to be focused in the United States. It'll be focused in Florida because we can fly all year. Wow, very interesting. Okay, we just have a few minutes left here. Um, did you? Uh, I, I know I asked you if you missed the session, but let me ask you this: I did a story with uh, Spencer Roach, the lawmaker out of uh, Fort Myers, earlier this year because he's been talking about this expanding the the session. Uh, you know, um, he said we have too many special sessions, which we certainly did in the last couple of years. But there, the sixty day session is too short, and that you know, you compared us to certain states like New York, California, which have like eight nine month sessions. Doesn't need to go that far. And then we know with committee meetings, you already go like four months basically, but the whole idea of cramming everything into six, uh, 60 days is in a big state like Florida where there's so much going on is too limited. And there's the, and not only that, so it'd be a longer session and lawmakers should make more money. Uh, so yeah, lawmakers should make more money. I'm not, I'm not going to argue that. Look, ultimately, I think it's a full time job. The, the big lie of the legislature is that it's a part time gig. The, the, the being <laughs> being in the legislature, I will tell you, it will take everything you're willing to give it plus twenty percent. Um, it, it's a it's a full time job, more or less, to be in the legislature. Um, I'm not a fan of extending the the legislature no. beyond sixty days. I, look, I think less laws are better than more. That's a libertarian uh, talking here. And so I, uh, I'm somebody who is very happy that the legislature only has 60 days to do damage uh, uh, to, the, to the state. And, and I'm always somebody who's very thankful. Even when I was in office, they're very thankful uh, that the legislative session ended within the 60-day time period. Uh, the fact that you have special sessions, look, I think that's a benefit because I think it focuses the mind of the legislature. Uh, and, and I don't think we've had too many. I think we've had enough to solve some of the bigger problems voters had. Well, there, I'm sorry. No. Oh, I, I was going to kind of pivot a little bit. You ask about, you know, everything it takes out of you, extra 20%. I just wanted to ask you, you know, being removed from Tallahassee now, you have a big family, you know, and then how are they feeling about your new endeavors here and how are you feeling as, as a dad, a father, a partner, uh, and, and, best, and all that the stuff? The best thing is being home, right? Like, there, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating because, you know, when I first started, I had one child. Now I have four. Yeah. Right? And so I had three children while I was away in Tallahassee. And, you know, I was gone 120, 130 days out of the year uh, traveling, uh, you know, not just Tallahassee time. It's not just legislative session and committee weeks. It's the conferences you have to attend. It's the nights that you're at the chicken dinners uh, and doing those types of things. It's a lot of work uh, to do it well. And luckily, you know, I, you know, there are legislators. Some legislators do it really well, and there's some legislators who do the bare minimum and get by and get, can get reelected. Um, I was never the one person I wanted to be. I think you know the, the difference with the, the different legislators I've always come up with is there's legislators who want to be somebody, and there's legislators who want to do something. And a lot of them want to be somebody. They, they get the office, they get the title, but then they're like the dog who caught the car. They're not really sure what they want to do when they get up there. And you know, when I was a senior legislator, I would have conversations all the time with these freshmen and sophomores that would come in and say, listen, I've got elected for a year or two now. What do I do? What do I focus on? And I always gave them one piece of advice, which was become an expert in one topic 
and then you know by year five or year six add another topic on that you become an expert in uh and and when you're an expert in one or two topics you become invaluable to the process uh and and, and really help the entire state of florida all right we'll leave it there for first state senator jeff brandis thank you so much for your time my honor it's great to be here. all right thank you so much again uh we'll be back next week uh with our fundraising drive the summer fundraising drive looking forward to that uh along with ben montgomery and ray roa i'm mitch perry uh thank you so much for listening you are listening to wmnf tampa 88.5 fm we'll see you same time same place next week Bye.